Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for October 4th, 2017. On today's show, in the news, we'll be talking about a bunch of Star Wars news. The live-action Sonic the Hedgehog movie is back in development, uh, some casting for the Halloween reboot, and a Hugh Hefner biopic that has a surprising uh, star and director. And in the mailbag, we'll be talking about the best sequels ever made. Uh, with me on today's podcast is Slash Film writer Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Guys, let's just dive into the news because there's a lot to get to. And there's quite a bit of Star Wars news. So uh, if, if, if you're tired of all the Star Wars news, uh, please excuse us. And uh, in the next two months, I'm sure there'll be a lot more leading up to Last Jedi. Uh, speaking of Last Jedi... Uh, the, the movie comes out in just a couple months, and we still don't know when tickets are going to be on sale. But, Ben, you you have some idea. Yes. Uh, thanks in large part to conversations that we had in the Slash Film Slack channel uh, and just a little bit of digging and, and some uh, historical evidence. We've come up with a, a pretty decent date, a, a good guess at when we are, those tickets are going to be available. And right now we have it pinpointed at October 9th, 2019. So that's next Monday. And the reason for this is, uh, part of the reasoning anyway, is Mark Hamill, obviously star of Star Wars, uh, revealed in a now-deleted tweet that the new trailer for The Last Jedi is going to be coming on during halftime of Monday Night Football on October 9th. Monday Night Football is on ESPN. That's a Disney-owned uh, network. So there's all sorts of corporate synergy going on there. So all that makes sense, especially when you consider that the Force Awakens trailer also came out during halftime of a Monday Night Football uh, game in the month of October. So all of this sort of aligns. Rogue One was a little bit different. Uh, that movie, even though it opened earlier than Force Awakens did, Tickets went on sale for that one in late November. So that was like a little bit of an oddity, but I'm not sure. I'm sort of pegging that as like a result of Disney maybe not being as sure about that movie, especially since it had so many uh, problems during uh, post-production and stuff. But Force Awakens seemed like uh, a home run for them and interest was super high. And then obviously a direct sequel to that. I feel like they are are pretty confident that this movie is going to do well. So um, following the same path that the Force Awakens took seems to indicate that October 9th is going to be the date when tickets will be made available. Yeah. And, and, and people may be wondering, why are we writing an article about a speculation of when tickets go on sale? And honestly, that comes down to, you know, I like seeing these movies with my friends and it would be a shame to be kind of sideswiped with this, you know, tickets are on sale right after the trailer hits, you know, on Monday Night Football and people not having the time to arrange with friends and, and figure out who's going to be going, where they want to see it. Uh, so basically what I'm saying here is you have been warned. 
you know, have the conversations now before, you know, it, it, it gets uh, surprise. you know, that the Disney surprises us with an on sale date because that could likely happen when the trailer, you know, airs during football. Yes, a public service announcement. <laughs> yes. Um, but also in Star Wars news, there is the Star Wars book that came out uh, on Tuesday uh, called From a Certain Point of View. And it's an anthology story. Uh, take, it tells 40 different stories celebrating the 40th anniversary of Star Wars uh, with characters that were kind of background characters in A New Hope. Um, so now that that book is out, there is a couple revelations that have have come out, and it, it, you know it, it should be pointed out that obviously all these new Star Wars books are canon, so they're considered part of you know the Star Wars canon. So anything that is said in these short stories is uh, you know part of this galaxy. So uh, first up, uh, let's talk about um, Yoda. There is a story with Yoda that reveals kind of shocking revelation that he, that Luke was not the one that he wanted to train. HT, you wrote the story for SlashFilm.com. What do we know? Yes. So in one of the 40 short stories that were featured in From a Certain Point of View, uh, these stories all take place during the events of A New Hope, by the way, uh, we find Yoda um, speaking to the force ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi and revealing that he actually wanted to train Leia as the next as a Jedi instead of Luke. So there, the title is called "There Is Another," uh, which is a reference to one of Yoda's lines in *Empire Strikes Back*, uh, in which he says, "There is another," in reference to who can save uh, the rebellion um, against the Sith and the Empire. So that another is in reference to Leia, who we know is force sensitive, but we haven't seen any sort of glimpse of her powers. And it turns out she does have the um, potential to become a Jedi Master as uh, Yoda foresaw, but we don't know yet. It was just a discussion with her, with him and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, so the short story follows Yoda as he makes his migration to the other side of Dagobah. Uh, during a seasonal change. And he has a conversation with Obi-Wan's ghost and uh, speaks about what their next move will be. So Obi-Wan suggests that Yoda trains a young Skywalker, to which Yoda eagerly accepts. Um, but Yoda is dismayed to learn that Obi-Wan was actually speaking of Luke Skywalker, not Leia Organa. Um, and Yoda argued that he saw more of the traits of a great, great Jedi in Leia, uh, but not so much in Luke, who he uh, sensed having the same great anger that his father Anakin had. So it's we know how the events uh, went down, of course. Luke uh, gets trained by Yoda after he gets tested by him, and uh, Leia leads the rebellion, so she doesn't exactly have time to train to become a Jedi, but... This might uh, make uh, be foreshadowing for perhaps Leia's arc in The Last Jedi. Uh, I, I would hope anyways. I, I do wish that we saw more of Leia outside of just being in the control room and leading the rebellion. Although that is an accomplishment in, in and of itself, of course. Yeah, I think, um, I think Carrie Fisher, d- during press for Force Awakens... Uh, talked about a conversation she had with J.J. Abrams about how she envisioned Leia to, you know, she didn't follow the path to become a full Jedi, but she still uses some of those um, some of those uh, things in her day to day life, like, you know, being able to be persuasive or being able to, like, you know, kind of uh, read the mind of uh, another person. Uh, so, yeah. This is interesting. It's it's a very cool twist and unexpected, and it's sure to piss off some of those uh, star bros out there. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I'm happy in all, all, all senses. Uh, ben, <laughs> you wrote up another another article about this book, and basically how it solved a mystery that no one was expecting or wanted to be solved. Yes. 
Yes. So in uh, if you guys remember in The Empire Strikes Back, there's a scene in which Darth Vader uh, basically orders a bunch of bounty hunters to bring back the uh, occupants of the Millennium Falcon. And Boba Fett is standing there and he at the very end of his conversation sort of points at Boba Fett and it's like no disintegrations. So obviously it implies that Boba Fett has done this before. It seems to be a problem between the two. Uh, but I've never given, I honestly have never given it a second thought. It, it's To me, it was just something that sort of made the character seem a little bit more notorious and like make him maybe feel like a little bit more badass than the rest of the people in the room. But the this book, this chapter of this book, decided to answer why... Uh, why Vader says this to him and explain exactly why Boba Fett has disintegrated something in the past before. So uh, the uh, excerpt from the chapter essentially says, uh, Vader's still got a mad on over those rebel spies I crisped on Coruscant. Uh, idiots came at me with ion disruptors. What, they thought I wouldn't carry a weapon accelerator? Flash boom, three tiny ash piles. <laughs> tried to collect and lord no disintegrations refused to pay without bodies my words not good enough apparently reckoned i'd make up the loss by finding his droids and holding out for twice the reward so that's like from obviously from boba fett's uh, perspective he's like narrating this uh, chapter of the short story um <laughs> i guess this was a thing between the two of them uh if he's you know sarcastically referring to vader as lord no disintegrations i guess that's something that he said to him multiple times over the years um, because the, as HT mentioned, this story takes place during the events of a new hope and the line in question co actually comes from empire strikes back. So this has happened a bunch of times before. Um, did, did anyone really need a full explanation of why uh, Boba Fett was dis disintegrating people? I don't know, but that's what we have now. No, we, we definitely didn't need it, but this is one of my favorite parts about, Star Wars fandom that the littlest things in the background of scenes and characters and lines spawn, you know, these it expands this world or maybe I guess some people would say it makes it smaller. But, um, you know, my favorite example is Wilro Hood, who is this guy that appears for frames in Empire Strikes Back running through Bespin City with what looks to be an ice maker. And um, if you ever go to a Star Wars convention, they have this thing called the uh, the running of the Wilros, I think it's called. And it, <laughs> it, it's like dozens and dozens of people dressed like Wilro Hood running with ice makers. And um, this is a character who fans demanded it. So he got an action figure made by Hasbro and he has a whole backstory and it, it you know it turns out that that was not an ice cream ma maker, it was, you know, a battery and he was a hero, you know, it was like it, he played a big part in that that whole uh part of the movie uh even though we only see him on screen for literally under a second. <laughs> um and I I love that. I kind of love that, but on the other side of the coin there is, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi mentioning that he fought along Luke's father during the Clone Wars. And that seems like so exciting. The Clone Wars. I, I wish I could see that. And then we saw it and uh, it wasn't that exciting. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, I love the idea of the story group and, and keeping everything in canon and the idea of like, you know, writers going back and mining every little line of dialogue from the movies for ways to, you know, uh, nod to it. But it, this particular example strikes me as a little bit much. I feel like, you know, you got to leave something for the fans to argue about. And I feel like at this rate, eventually in all of the books and comics and all of these sort of non-movie uh, ancillary products, every question that anyone has ever had about Star Wars is going to be definitively answered in canon. And that just seems like not quite as fun as the way it is right now. For sure. Let's move on from Star Wars to video games. A live-action Sonic the Hedgehog movie is speeding into development. HT, you wrote the article for Slash Film. What do we know? So Paramount Pictures has officially picked up the project of the Son Sonic the Hedgehog live-action movie. Uh, it's going to be produced by Fast and Furious producer Neil H. Moritz and Deadpool director Tim Miller. Uh, they are going to be helming it uh, with... First-time director Jeff Fowler under Blur Studios, which is a Tim Miller studio. And uh, this was a project that has been long in the making. Um, 
contrary to Sonic the Hedgehog's abilities, this it's been a slow it's been a slow process for the Sonic the Hedgehog uh, film. So this originally came about in 2013 when Sony Entertainment acquired the film rights from Sega. Uh, the video game company that produced Sonic the Hedgehog um, in 2013. And um, Moritz, Miller, and Fowler were all attached to the project since then, but uh, nothing came of it until Paramount this year picked up uh, the project. So it will allegedly be a movie that blends live action and CG elements, which probably means that Sonic will be a CGI character in the real world. Uh, we don't know much else about the film. We don't know who will be writing it, but um, we know that it's happening now and it's fast tracking its way into development. This just sounds like a bad idea. Like, why do we need a Sonic the Hedgehog movie? I can't even imagine what it's going to be. I know they're making a Pikachu, Detective Pikachu movie. That sounds even worse. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. my gosh. <laughs> and um, I don't know. It just seems like he's an iconic character and they, they see, you know, they see it as printing money. I mean, th- think about this, guys. Disney, a company that, you know, they basically own uh, most of Hollywood, aren't making Mickey Mouse movies. And Mickey Mouse is one of the most iconic characters in in the universe um, and most recognized. But I, I think they understand that no one wants to see a Mickey Mouse movie. Like w- Peter, in a world where there is an emoji movie, I <laughs> can't find myself surprised at the fact that a Sonic the Hedgehog movie is coming to theaters. Yeah, all bets are off at that point. I feel like this is just going to be like the Smurfs or something. Like they're going to make him like a fast talking, like hip little guy with an attitude. You know, like I, I just <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be bad. You know, the, the only thing I can see is if he's actually the size of a hedgehog in our reality and there's maybe some kind of like you know like the end of ant-man had some humor with you know kind of that going on like this these small battles in the grand scheme of things but i'm not (laughs) sure if that can support a uh full feature length live action film i mean give me john goodman as dr robotnik and you got yourself a a ticket purchased so (laughs) (laughs) um by the way, guys, I, I, we were lucky enough to get a uh, SNES Mini. Did, did any of you? Did either of you? No. Get that? No? No. Um, and uh, Kitra, who had never played Zelda, is playing through Zelda. And it's just funny to me how – I don't know. I'm watching this, and I, I, I'm not a big video gamer as is, but um, modern video games like Uncharted, you know, they have some they, – they're – so engrossed in story right and it, it it is occurring to me while i'm watching her play this like in in mario world there is like an umpire that's throwing baseballs at you and no one no one plays this game if this was a movie and you know someone got sucked in a you know a pipe into this world and there was all of a sudden like you know oh sure there's mushrooms and all the stuff now, now there's like an umpire throwing baseballs at you and no one no one playing this game is like this is weird like what is going on with this world what is going on with this story <laughs> the, the, the whole mario franchise is so inconsistently i don't think there is any canon to it <laughs> it doesn't make any sense um and then the other thing that occurred to me is that she's playing zelda for the first time and there's a, you know, there's always a locked door. And then right in the room with the locked door, there is a chest with inside the chest is the key. If I'm going to hide the key to the locked door, I'm not going to hide it in the room right in front of the locked door. I don't Peter, know. you're thinking about this too much. I know. I'm yeah, thinking I, about this. I think you're overanalyzing video games. I am. I am. I'm totally. Uh, I'm glad that video games have become uh they, they make more narrative sense than this. Uh, but uh, I don't know. It's just like it's the whole reason why a Mario movie did not work is I don't feel like there's enough story to base it off of. And I, I think that's the same with Sonic. Uh, I think the cult following around the Mario movies would disagree with you. By the way, have you rewatched that in the last like five, ten years? I have not. King Koopa's castle in the real world is the uh, the Twin Towers. It's so oh, weird. Um, and it's also weird because it's honestly like, if you think about it, it's the take. It is the gritty 
realistic take on a fantastical property. It's kind of like the take that like Chris Nolan kind of spawned like this whole era of, you know, these films doing these like gritty real life takes on these fantastical properties. And it's that, but it's not good. Um, and it's you know ten years earlier. Um, anyways, or, t- or twenty years earlier, whatever it is. Um, anyways, moving on. Uh, the Halloween reboot has cast Judy Greer. Ben, what do we know? Yes, uh, Judy Greer, who you might remember from Arrested Development, and she's uh, she's like actually I feel like she's one of the better um, sort of. Uh, how do you want to say it? Maybe like least utilized actresses in Hollywood. She, I think people have have noticed a trend of her popping up in uh, really, really small supporting roles in big movies recently. Um, and Ant-Man, she plays uh, Paul Rudd's character's wife or ex-wife uh, in Jurassic world. She shows up for like three or four minutes or something. Um, she is in the Planet of the Apes movies, but she's sort of buried under uh, performance capture CG stuff. So you can't really get a good sense that it's her. But uh, Judy Greer, you know her. She's great. Anyway, she's been cast in the Halloween, the new Halloween movie that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride are making. Uh, Greer is going to be playing a character named Karen Strode, who is the daughter of Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode. Uh, apparently, this is not the first time that offspring of Jamie Lee Curtis's character were featured in the Halloween franchise. I've not seen the movies beyond Halloween 2, but in Halloween 4, 5, and The Curse of Michael Myers, apparently she has, uh, the character of Laurie Strode has a daughter named Jamie and, um, let's see, who else? Uh, a, A son named John. And because this new movie is just going to be basically picking up after the events of Halloween 2, it seems like those characters are no longer considered canon. So it seems like um, Judy Greer's new character, uh, Karen, is going to be the only daughter of Jamie Lee Curtis's character. At least that's what it looks like uh, at this stage. So uh, anyway, the the short version is Judy Greer is being cast in another movie. That's good news. Hopefully she'll have a part that's big enough that are, it's actually worthy of her talents. Yes. Now the question is, can she scream really loud? Um, <laughs> also in the news, Hugh Hefner, uh, the guy who created Playboy magazine, uh, recently died. The, a biopic starring Jared, Jared Leto is already in the works. HT, what do we know? So Brett Ratner will be directing this upcoming biopic about Hugh Hefner um, starring Jared Leto. Uh, This movie has been in development for several years now. Um, Ratner has been working on the film since 2007, which originally had Robert Downey Jr. attached to play the Playboy magazine founder slash businessman. Um, so Hugh Hefner was really excited about this casting when it occurred, and he said at the time that it would be my hope and dream to see Robert Downey Jr. play himself in the biopic. But as the years went on, the uh, production kind of crumbled, and Brett Ratner lost the film rights temporarily to Warner Brothers. Um, but he got it back in 2015 and brought Jared Leto into the fold, who uh, is a friend of Ratner, so it was easy for him to convince him. So Jared Leto is a friend of Brett Ratner. No, according to the Hollywood <laughs> Reporter, no, I, uh, I, I can picture those two at, like hanging out at a strip club. It, it's disgusting. Yeah, um, as I Ratner actually this. said, oh yeah, Ratner actually said Jared is an old friend. When I heard when he heard I got the rights to Hef's story, he told me. I want to play him. I want to understand him. And I really believe Jared can do it. He's one of the great actors of today. So I don't know what Jared means by I want to understand him. It, it probably means he's going to go all method again and maybe don silk robes for a whole year or something. Um, He'll have multiple <laughs> wives or multiple girlfriends yeah, living well, in the same house together. Exploit Marilyn Monroe. Who knows? <laughs> um <laughs> So uh, Jared Leto was actually cast a few months ago uh, when Hugh Hefner was still uh, alive. But um, and uh, Brett Ratner actually brought Leto to a Playboy Mansion event in April uh, with the intention of introducing the two of them. But uh, Hefner was too ill at the time and the meeting never occurred. So now that um, Hugh Hefner has passed away a couple about a week ago, um, this film is starting to uh get back into the works and get back on the fast track. So 
we will be seeing that soon. There's no um, date involved or a writer named yet for the film, but uh, we will probably be seeing Leto go full method again for a Hugh Hefner biopic. <laughs> I mean, are either of you excited for this? Like, it, it, like Hugh Hefner <laughs> as himself is an interesting character, but then you add Brett Ratner as the director and you add Jared Leto as the, the star. I, I'm just, I don't know. Yeah, I I think my feelings are summed up very well by a tweet that I saw from uh, The Atlantic's David Sims today when this news came out. And he said, never have director, actor and subject been so well matched. And I think that's a pretty good uh, way to describe this. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a fan of Jared Leto. I am less a fan of Hugh Hefner, uh, despite uh, Hugh Hefner's reported early activism for uh, female reproductive rights. He is a and also free a, speech. Yeah, he, and free speech. He's still a very polarizing and honestly kind of a terrible human being. I mean, as a lot of uh, figures in history are, he was he had more, about equal amount of problems as he, as he did achievements. Um, and yeah, he he exploited pe- women most of his life. And uh, it's I'm hoping that this biopic does not ask act as a hagiography um, yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than a biography. So um, hopefully it'll be true to, you know, Hugh Hefner's problems and achievements. But yeah, I've, I'm not excited about this film. I don't think we need a Hugh Hefner biopic, but I'm not Hollywood, so. Yeah, I, I don't have uh, any love for Hugh Hefner. Uh, he did save the Hollywood sign. It was going it was going to be turned into con- condominiums. And uh, that I respect because I love Hollywood. And that would have been a shame. <laughs> but uh, in recent years, I don't think he's done much of the activism that he did in, in uh, you know, earlier in his career. Um, yes. So we'll have to see how this turns out. I'm betting it won't turn out well, but prove me wrong Brett Ratner as I say every time he gets announced for a project (laughs) okay let's move on to the mailbag every or almost every day on the podcast we try to answer questions from you the listeners Uh, you send them in to peter at slash film.com you mention your name and general geographic location and we try to answer them on the air Uh, today we're answering a question from Leanne R from Los Angeles who asks what are your favorite movie sequels uh, slash sequels that surpassed or equaled the former movies in your opinions? Uh, thanks for your hard work on the daily podcast. Very, it's always fun to hear film news while stuck in traffic on the four or five. Well, hopefully we are making your four or five drive a little easier. Um, this, this is one of the like first of these questions that really took me some time to narrow it down because there is like, I know a lot of people like to hate on sequels, but there are a lot of great sequels or at least a lot of sequels that I love. Um, I think it's uh, sure there's a lot of bad sequels as well, but um, I guess guys, let, let's go, let's go through this one by one. I'll, I'll, I'll list mine right off the top is empire strikes back. And I, I, I think that's probably one of the most obvious. It, I mean, it's no Godfather 2. Uh, I think that's probably on the top of many lists. That's a movie that you won't hear on our list here today. But um, Empire Strikes Back is, you know, it does everything that Star Wars did right. It makes it darker, more intense. The special effects are times 10. The, you know, Han Solo. The, I don't know. It, it's just I love I love the pulpy cliffhanger of Han Solo and Carbonite. Um, which is, you know, an example I still use every day when people tell me that they, they don't want, uh, cinematic universes. Um, yes. Empire Strikes Back is, is in my top three movies of all time. Yeah, that's definitely the gold standard. I mean, how many times, uh, have you heard movie makers talk about aiming for the empire strikes back are using that as an influence you know when they're making their own sequels it's like incalculable think about it there's yoda there's you know hoth there's just so many worlds and characters that were introduced in that movie that are intrinsically part of star wars do you know what i mean like when we think of star wars we think of 
Empire Strikes Back. Anyways, uh, Ben, what is your first pick? So mine is one that I think maybe equals the uh, original. I'm not quite ready to say that it surpasses it because it, 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 it does surpasses such a... it. It surpasses. Well, okay. So it's Terminator 2: Judgment Day, um, and I feel like the original Terminator is. Uh, I mean, it's just straight up. It's a horror movie, and Terminator 2 is an action film. So they're two different things. So it's tough to say whether the second one is a better movie than the first one because it's doing. It, it's sort of approaching things in an entirely different way. Um, you know, maybe uh, uh, aesthetically and sort of uh, from on a technical level, it definitely surpasses the original. Um, and obviously it was like a, a groundbreaking movie um, for digital effects. And James Cameron just like pushed the envelope as far as it could physically go uh, in the early 90s with that. And and the original Terminator came out in, I think it was 84. So um, there were years and years of uh of you know technological advancements that took place in between the two movies so of course terminator 2 is going to look a hell of a lot better and it does and that movie i mean it just was re-released in theaters i didn't get a chance to see it in theaters just now but uh that movie holds up like very few action films of today do um and it is uh it's a tremendous piece of filmmaking so uh, i'm not ready to say that it's better than the first one but it's definitely as good no one does a movie sequel like James Cameron does a movie sequel. And I know everybody's, you know, hating on Avatar and the upcoming Avatar sequels. Imagine if he does what he did with Terminator to Terminator 2 with those sequels. Yeah, that's going to be insane. Uh, yeah. Um, HT, what's your first pick? My first pick is Before Sunset, which is the second film in Richard Linklater's Before trilogy, um, a trilogy that was never intended to happen in the first place after the events of Before uh, Sunrise. So um, Before Sunset takes place nine years after the events of Before Sunrise, and it's a remarkably more bittersweet and just touching film for me um, because both of the films take place, um, well, Before Sunset takes place when these characters are in their 30s and um, is filmed nine years after the events of the original film. So the Richard Linklater, Julie Delpy, and Ethan Hawke poured their own experiences and um, uh, perspectives as more um, disillusioned 30-year-olds uh, versus their more hopeful and optimistic um, 20-year-olds as in the first one. So it, and that really comes to fruition. It's a much tighter film. It only takes place in one afternoon versus one night. And it's just, it's, I love the bittersweetness of it and how um, the ambiguity is a little bit more entrenched in this like um, realism than in the first one. The first one kind of takes place in like this sort of fantasy world that's removed from the rest of well, it. That's also like when you fall in love for the first time and you have that yeah. first date, like that's what it's like. I feel mm -hmm. like it perfectly captured that versus kind of the reality that sets in with yeah. this film and the the one that did you like uh this film over the third film i did um so i actually have a uh comparison for people who prefer each film so before sunrise are for the optimists before sunset are for the realists and before midnight is for the cynics so i think <laughs> that it's definitely like each film appeals to people differently. And I think that Before Sunset captures that perfect middle ground for me. Well, it looks like I am an optimist. What about you, Ben? Uh, I, man, this is such a great pick, HT. I was very, I was jealous that I saw that you <laughs> got to this one before uh, I could come up with it because that's, that's a really, really excellent sequel. And it's, it's one that sort of, um, God, yeah, I, I have to side with HT on this one. I think I pick the, I think Before Sunset is probably the best of the trilogy. Yeah. I, I'm just so surprised that so many people I saw the the third one at Sundance and everybody was like this is the best in the the series and I was, it's very good but it's I I want the ending, to believe. The I think that's just your before... personal preference Peter it's just like you know you're more of an optimist I I, yeah, I, the, I do the... think that's probably the case I, I I do think I want to believe that you know that all relationships don't go that way <laughs> you know? yeah. I like my movies to be sad. <laughs> okay uh next on my list is another obvious choice and that's christopher nolan's the dark knight i wasn't a person that loved 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 batman begins uh the dark knight has made me love that it's one of those sequels that made me love the the first film 
a lot more than I did. Um, yes, it's dark and gritty. I know Hollywood, you know, spent 10 years trying to copy that. And I don't think that's why people loved that film. People loved, uh, you know, I loved Heath Ledger's portrayal of the, of the Joker. I loved the fact that he, you know, painted a picture of Gotham as a real city that felt, uh, you know, it didn't feel like a comic book movie. It felt, um, this felt as like a smart film that was on the level of, you know, Academy award winning, uh, classics, uh, in the, in the gangster movie genre. Um, and it's just so great. Even like the worst parts of this movie are like the best parts of other superhero films. And I know, I know it's gotten to the level that, so many people love it that it's kind of have has this backlash against it now. But every time I watch it, I'm I'm amazed at how great this film is. And also, it was the first like real film to have that those IMAX sequences that were like I remember the first time I saw that bank sequence in an IMAX theater, the bank heist at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. I felt the I felt like the seats were moving as the camera like craned in, and I was like, oh my god, this is. That's one of the best opening sequences in a movie ever. Yeah. No, it, it was just magic. It, it, it's one of those moments that you're in a cinema and you're like, I'm I'm watching something special. Definitely. So, um, ben, what's your next pick? Uh, my next one is Captain America, the Winter Soldier. I was not really a huge fan of the first Captain America movie. I like it well enough. Um, you know, as somebody who loves the Rocketeer, I like Joe Johnson's work. Uh, as a director, I think he did a fine job with that movie. I just I wasn't crazy about Red Skull as a villain. And uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier just sort of ups the ante in all the right ways for me. Um, introducing Bucky as the Winter Soldier and that that real um, it, it's the movie that sort of builds out their dynamic, the dynamic between Bucky and Cap um, the most, I think. And then the one where. It made me actually care about Captain America as a character instead of as an icon. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, I don't really have too much to say about that film. I think anybody who's seen it, uh, you know, it, it's probably up there on your list of favorite Marvel movies because it's it's generally very well regarded and all that stuff. But I think as a uh, in particular, as a sequel to the Captain America, the first Avenger, um, it works exceptionally well. Um, I think I like Civil War a little bit better than Winter Soldier, but um, Winter Soldier is an amazing uh, comic book movie. And another yeah, amazing I'm... comic book movie, HT, <laughs> what's your, next on your list? Uh, my li- Next on my list is Spider-Man 2, which I still think is one of the best superhero movies of all time. Uh, so Spider-Man 2 is Sam Raimi's follow-up to Spider-Man um, and it features all the classic uh, tropes of a superhero movie, an identity crisis, a villain who is reflective of Peter Parker's own personality and his own sort of id. And it is just so well done and so, I don't want to say classic. It's just the way that it builds up is um, is so genuine and earnest. And I feel like... Set, sets itself apart from a lot of these other more subversive, uh, glib superhero movies. Superhero movies we're seeing today. Uh, Spider-Man Two is just is so good. The train scene, uh, the train scene where Peter Parker um, tries to save the uh, subway riders who are about to be derailed. Um, he that part in the movie is still so harrowing and so suspenseful that it it just is. Com- it elevates the film. Well, oh, it's it's, it's it's masterly directed it's by masterly Sam Raimi. Yeah, like that mm-hmm. the, the sequence where in the hospital with Doc Ock, uh, mm-hmm. the, that train sequence. And the thing is about it, you care about the characters so much. Like they're like I I remember first seeing the movie. I I, I don't remember what part, but it's it's a movie that made me cry uh, in the theater. Uh, and it's a superhero film, which mm-hmm. at, at the time was like crazy. Like it was crazy talk that a movie could emo- emotionally get you. That was a comic book movie. Now, now that happens more often. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people would see Spider-Man Two as cheesy now, but I think that genuine emotion and empathy that emanates from Spider-Man Two is still 
is still unmatched. I guess you see some of it in Wonder Woman, but it it holds it up amongst the great superhero films. Yeah, that one was almost on my list. Uh, a film I, w- I did put on my list is uh, Mission Impossible 3. And I, I don't think this is probably on many people's lists of best sequels of all time. But uh, I was never really a fan of the Mission Impossible series. The, the first film is kind of boring. Um, it, it's it's long. It uh, uh, I know that what John Woo did the second one, and that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Three is perfect for me. Like the movie opens, and I know it was a, a trick of editing with J.J. Abrams, but it opens with Philip Seymour Kaufman's character uh, and uh, Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt in their confirm- confrontation from late in the film, and it's. Tom, the acting of Tom Cruise in that scene. I know people like to hate on Tom Cruise now, but the acting—he goes from like one stage to the next to the next in, in 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 the period of like two minutes. We get to see a range of emotions that you don't see from most of the best actors working in Hollywood. And uh, I know the action in this film isn't probably as an as great as Brad Bird's Ghost Protocol. But I like it just fine, and I like I like how clever it is. How you know has these moments that remind me of almost J.J. Abrams' Alias, of like you know uh, Tom Cruise is at the party and he he is able to read lips across the room, and you know it's, I don't know it's just very clever and it's very J.J. and it's one of the reasons I fell in love with J.J. Abrams uh, in his films uh, is is Mission Impossible Three. That's a great one. Yeah, that opening scene is is amazing. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's definitely the best villain that that franchise has ever seen. For sure. And I, I just love all the tropes, too, of, like, the bad guy always kind of being within uh, the, their organization. And it, it, mm-hmm. it's fun in the same way that I think 24 is fun uh, at yeah. times. Yes. Uh, ben, what is your next choice? My next one is a, a very recent movie. That's John Wick Chapter 2. Um, the first one was great, but I think the second one does everything that I want in a sequel, which is sort of um, raising the level of the jaw-dropping, visceral action scenes, but also, more importantly, I think, uh, expanding the franchise's mythology, which in the John Wick movies is so weird and so unique and um, just sort of off-kilter and really fun. So the way that this movie, you know, it, it takes the action uh, international. It go, you know, Wick goes to Rome, and there are all sorts of insane action sequences and like catacombs underneath the city and stuff like that. But the the stuff that really does it for me as a fan of these movies is the the ins and outs of how this assassin network actually functions, and like the reveal that. Um, you know, a, a considerable number, a considerable percentage of the homeless population in New York City is actually undercover assassins. So just the stuff that is so sort of off the wall ridiculous, that's the stuff that I love about it. And I think the movie takes it seriously, which is to its credit. And um, and but it knows that it's uh, a little goofy and a little um yeah, just a, a little weird. So uh, the Continental and all of the rules, uh, you know, Peter, we talk a lot about movies being able to set up their own rules. And like, you know, when uh, a movie sets up its rules and something goes wrong, the stakes are automatically raised because you know that something is is uh, not the norm. And I think that's what um, does so well. It's what sort of serves these movies so well from a plot perspective is it goes out of its way to uh, lay down the rules of the assassins guild and the networks and all that stuff. Um, and then, uh, breaks those rules in interesting ways. I love John, what John Wick chapter two did for the world building. I like the, the action in the first one a little bit more, but, uh, yeah, HT, uh, what is your third movie? Uh, my third movie is toy story three. So each Toy Story film is unquestionably amazing, but Toy Story 3 really brought the entire series together. I'm a little bit upset, actually, that there's going to be a Toy Story 4 because the third movie just felt like such a great bookender to this trilogy. Um, So Toy Story 3 came out uh, uh, several years after the second one. Uh, It 
arrived right when I was about to go to college. I had just graduated high school, and the so, so you were the toys- same year. You were the same age as Andy. Growing I was the same this- age as Andy, so I went to see it with my friends after we graduated, and we all came out crying. It just tapped into all of these um, ideas about childhood and leaving behind. Uh, these memories and these sort of things as we uh, age and mature and that it 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 struck an emotional core for me and I I think that Toy Story 3 really just um, gets into that uh, that emotional um, connection that audiences had with the first two ones while elevating it for the current audience so they made it connect to the people who were the age that Andy was and the who grew up at the same time. So for me, I had a special, an extra punch because of that. And it's just such a, good, a well-made film. Uh, so the part that, that makes everyone cry during the um, uh, incinerator, that one is actually not the most emotional part for me. The most emotional part is the end when Woody says, so long partner, and Andy drives off because that was such a moment of catharsis and i think toy story and pixar does so well those um those uh emotional scenes that delve into not just sadness and um and uh trauma but deal with a whole range of emotions like that we deal with inside out that sadness and happiness and toy story three so good um, okay, we are running out of time, so I'm going to briefly <laughs> go through my last two, and you guys could go through your last twos. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, um, you know, it's bigger, it's better, you know, we introduced Indiana Jones's father, the Nazis are back, you know, it, it was cool them going, like, uh, you know, in mine carts and in this, you know, against Mullah Ram and Temple of Doom, but the Nazis are the the best Indiana Jones villain, and it's just so much fun. And uh, my my last choice, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is Matt Reeves' follow-up to uh, Rise, it just elevated that series from... I don't know. It, it Rise is a great movie, or is a good movie, but uh, Dawn is a great movie. It, it feels like an award-caliber film dealing with apes taking over the earth. It, it's crazy that we're getting such a great, uh, such a, a, a blockbuster on that level, on that scale and that level. The first 10 minutes of that movie with, that is almost like, a nature film um it's just so good um not to say that war isn't as good but uh dawn i think holds a special place in my heart ben how about you uh my last two are star trek 2 the wrath of khan which i think improves on the very very slow and uh ponderous star trek the motion picture uh wrath of khan is like a really solid tightly plotted action movie um with characters that are recognizable and even if this this is like a really great entry point for people who know nothing about star trek just throw on star trek 2 they don't really have to know the backstory of everything that happened in the previous film you can just drop somebody into the whole franchise right there and all the dynamics are sort of laid out in front of you and it's a super entertaining film and the other one is christmas vacation which i think it's worked its way into my family's Christmas movie rotation every year since it's come out, basically. And uh, I think it's a much better movie than National Lampoon's Vacation. Uh, It's more specific, I think. Um, The holiday setting just uh, is rife for the kinds of, uh, I guess, like overreactions that uh, the Clark Griswold character (laughs) tends to do. And um, yeah, I I just feel like it improves on the formula in every way. I'm so jealous of that pick. That is such a great pick. H.T., what about your last two? All right, my last two. uh, First one is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which was Alfonso Cuaron's first and only stab at the Harry Potter series. This was the film that elevated the franchise from a family-friendly sort of magical fantasy to uh, one with stakes, uh, with much darker uh, themes and premises, and sort of brought... And injected a gritty realism into the the series without being too overtly dark. Um, so 
Alfonso Cuaron is an excellent director. He really made the best Harry Potter film. And it, its impact showed for the rest of the uh, films that followed from the fourth to the seventh. And um, it still stands out to be, it has it has its, an equal share of levity and of stakes and um, maturity. So my last pick is Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, this was a case of just extreme escalation. The first Mad Max um, was sort of a border exploitation film that was incredibly uh, small and limited and dealt with this sort of on the on the cusp of apocalypse society as um, Mad Max uh, deals with uh, these bikers who murder his family and uh, has to give in to this sort of primal rage. Whereas Mad Max Fury Road is set far in the future, very sort of different character almost and um is this just amazing and vibrant and imaginative apocalypse film that you wouldn't have assumed the first mad max would go from that to this um it's it's just a brilliant case of escalation and one of the best one of the pinnacles of blockbuster filmmaking harry potter has never been better than when alfonso curan did in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban and Mad Max. I'm going to be the dissenter here. <gasps> Mad Max Fury Road is fun, but the story is just so thin. It's so thin, and the <laughs> characters are so have, thin. You don't have to have a complex story to make a good film. Sometimes that is the best way. Hey, to make I, a good I'm film. not saying it's not good. I'm just. <laughs> I don't think it's great. All right. Agree to disagree, Peter. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we could discuss that later at some other time, but we have <laughs> run out of time for today. Uh, you can find more of HT's work at HTranBooey on Twitter. You can find her at the Millennial Falcon Podcast on iTunes. You can find Ben at Ben Pears on Twitter. You can find me at SlashFilm on Twitter. Uh, you can find this podcast published every day on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, uh, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, you can send your questions into Peter at SlashFilm.com, and hopefully we will answer them on the air. Please go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. We have made it to the top five of film and television on iTunes, which is incredible. And I, I, I didn't think we would be there anytime soon. So thank you guys. Keep spreading the word. Uh, tell your friends about this podcast. It's the only way people are going to find out about it is if you talk about it. And uh, if you're enjoying it, please do that. If you aren't, please send me an email. Tell, tell me how we can make it better. Um, yes. And uh, thank you for listening.